from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of christ i'll stand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of christ i'll stand lord this morning we recognize that it is in you alone that we have power that uh, that we have salvation lord i pray that this morning you would speak through zach and just speak truth through your word and in jesus name we pray amen thank you may be seated thank you guys for leading us in worship August of 2011, I got to go on a pretty cool trip. Um, back years ago, I used to do some freelance uh, videography in the outdoor industry. And so that's a nice way of saying, saying I filmed hunts for television. And uh, it was a side gig. It was a side, side hustle kind of thing. But I got invited to go film uh, a mountain goat hunt in Alaska. And uh, man, um, talked about it with my employer. They were good with it. Talked about my wife. She was like, is it dangerous? I might have lied. Um, it was, in fact, a dangerous hunt. I didn't even really know exactly how dangerous it was, but go figure, mountain goat hunting can be dangerous. It's really steep. And um, it, was a, it was an incredibly cool trip. We, we, you know, the planes just kept getting smaller. We finally end up in Homer, Alaska, and we get on a float plane, and we fly down to Kodiak Island, and we get on a boat. And on this, on this hunt, I'm, I'm filming halibut fishing, salmon fishing, this mountain goat hunt, and black bear. That was kind of the things. Now, by the way, there's grizzlies on Kodiak. I was hoping to see one. Actually didn't. And so we go, and we fly in on this boat, and of course we land in a cove. We get on the boat. We fish there. We make this uh, like six-hour boat ride up the Kenai Peninsula, and we kind of get in this big cove, and we park. And this is going to be where we hunt from. We're going to get off the boat on a little skiff, and we're going to ride around up in the coves until we spot from the boat mountain goats, and then we're going to make a stalk. And so, um, sure enough, a few days go by, and we caught halibut, we caught salmon, we spotted a goat. Uh, we, we made the, the stalk, and um, it, we were successful. It ran down the backside of the mountain, literally... I've run marathons, I've done Tough mutters. it was the hardest day of my life. And um, we come back that night, we get back to the boat about 1 a.m., and we need to be back out like at daylight at 5 a.m. to bear hunt, and so 5 a.m. rolls around, and I get up, and I, I walk upstairs where the captain, the captain is, and the, the, uh, the outfitter, and they go, it's a no-go, today there's a storm coming. And they said, this storm's going to be a really bad storm, matter of fact, we're probably going to be stuck on this boat for three days. And uh, the, he said, you just, just chill, whatever, you can go back to bed if you want. Breakfast is ready. I'm going to eat breakfast. So I ate breakfast, and I, I went back down, and I got in the belly of the boat, and I fell asleep. I didn't care that the storm was coming. What could I do about it? It's the captain that had to worry about it, right? And so I fell, fell back asleep, and I was sleeping like a baby, when all of a sudden, the captain come down, comes downstairs, and he shakes me, and he says, get up and get your things. I'm flying you out of here. Uh, we, I don't want you guys in this boat during the storm. And so I just argued with him. No, absolutely not. I didn't argue with him. He's the captain, right? What did I do? I packed my bags, and I went up, and I waited for the float plane. And we got on the float plane, and we flew back to Homer. And when the storm hit that boat, we were on the spit eating sushi, right? 
Um, it was glorious. It was, an, and by the way, I got paid for the whole trip, even though it got cut short. Um, it was, it was glorious. But you know what I did not do? I did not argue with the captain. That was the captain's boat, and the people on that boat were his responsibility. And when he came and he said, "Get, get ready, you're getting off my boat," I listened to him. Because he is the one who had the authority. By the way, he made that very clear the moment we stepped on that boat, that he was the one who had the authority. I trusted him. As we approach this text today, here's the big truth that I want you to, to, to know, or just to think through as, as we begin walking through these two different passages of Scripture, uh, two different stories. The big truth that I want you to know is that Jesus has all authority. He is the one with the authority. And so when we come to God and we come to his word, we ought to submit to his authority. The fact that Jesus has all authority means that there is no authority except that which he gives or allows to be taken. He takes the king's heart and just like a river, he puts it wherever he will. Here's one thing that is certain. There is no power or authority that can overthrow the kingdom of God. So as we approach this text today, let us rejoice because Jesus is the one who is in control. Let us rejoice in this big truth that Jesus has all authority. We're going to be continuing in the book of Luke chapter 8. So go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there uh, to the the book of Luke chapter 8. We've been in the book of Luke for some months now. And in the past weeks, we've had to deal with um, his... His authority. We've had to deal with his word last week, the parable of the sower and what that meant. Uh, what the parable of the, the sower meant and how he is the, the, the one who saves, but those who he saves will persevere until the end. We've talked about Jesus' mothers and brothers last week. And that his mothers are, and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. They're not just hearers only, but doers also. And so, uh, I believe that where we are in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 today, this is just one of the next things that happen as, as Luke and the other, uh, uh, Matthew and Mark, also do a really good job of telling this story. Uh, they just kind of put what happens, what comes next. And so... Starting in verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they seized and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey it. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. 
For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed mans had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart for them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat, and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, these seem like two uh, very different stories. But you have to realize the, the story, the beginning story, when he calms the storm, it, it was the mode of transportation to get him to the banks of the Gerasenes where this man was. But in both of these stories, we see one common theme, and that is Jesus' authority. We see that he had authority. So let's back up and let's first handle uh, this story where they're in the boat. And in some ways, this story is the easier one for us to handle. So he gets in the boat with his disciples. Um, he had been, remember, he had, he had been teaching. He had just preached this uh, this sermon um, at some point earlier uh, about the parable of the sowers. Obviously, this sermon had great impact on people. We know from the sermons that he preached when he would preach that people would push in around him that they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear what he was saying. We see that multiple places in Scripture and that often he would have to get in a boat to basically escape the pressures from those they were putting on him. And so he says, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sell, he fell asleep. He, he was able to, in the midst of being so tired from preaching, I guess, or maybe he's just, you know, I have one gift in life. It's the gift of sleep. Uh, it's the only gift I have, but I can sleep anywhere, anytime, no matter what is going on. Like if it's time to go to sleep, I can just go to sleep. Jesus knew what was going on. We know that God was sovereign. He knew all things. He knew the storm was coming, and yet he falls asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water. They were in danger. So imagine this. Imagine, imagine the boat. Imagine it filling with water. Imagine this, this storm. As a matter of fact, that windstorm, uh, it, it's as if, if a, they were in a hurricane, like hurricane-force winds. Uh, you would use the same Greek word for that windstorm and hurricane. And so they go, and they wake him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, by the way, each of the Gospels uses a different perspective on how they woke him up. And so it's interesting, as Luke's given his perspective, imagine there's many disciples, so each of them is going to be saying different things. So one of those was saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. 
We're not going to make it through the storm. We're going to perish. And he awoke. And what he does when he, when he wakes up is incredible. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves and they cease. Just in, a, in an instant, in a moment, they cease. They stop. There was a calm. And this is what he says to them. This is kind of a rebuke. He says, where is your faith? They were afraid. And they marveled. That was their emotional response. The response to his authority was like, how can this guy have so much authority? And they marveled at it, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So here's my first big idea today, is that Jesus has authority over the physical realm. We look at the things in the world. Uh, we, look, we look at the, the, the water, the mountains, the, the wind, the things that we physically feel, we physically experience. Jesus has authority over them. Now, as we read this, I think there's actually a lot that we can relate to. Um, we, we see that this, they, they call it a lake, but we know from the town's name that this is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's also called Lake Tiberias. It's also called Kinneret. It has multiple names. It is situated in the northeast corner of Israel in an area modern day that's like if you look on a map between Golan Heights and the Galilee region. Uh, it's in, you remember, probably remember about this, hearing this in school, the Jordan Rift Valley, one of the most fertile valleys in the world. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. The only thing uh, that is lower than it is the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is a saltwater lake. Uh, so this, this sea is like 705 feet below sea level. And it's um, 13 miles long, so that's like twice the length of, of horse tooth. And it's about 8 miles wide. So you've got to think it's considerably, it's, it's wider than horse tooth is long. So it's a, it's a big lake. And you can imagine, if you can relate to being on horse tooth, when a storm pops over the mountain and the winds come up and it, it gets stormy really fast, we, you, you can relate. Um, if you just would look up, look up uh, later, not right now, uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee on YouTube. So think of a lake that's not that big, right? I mean, think about it. If we look at horse tooth, just right up here, you're looking at twice that length, a little longer than, a little wider than it is long. That's not that big compared to other, other lakes. And then you look at the videos and watch how big the waves are. And then it, it, it happens, the storms happen fast, like they come up on you fast. And so you've got this low lake and these mountains around it that, that create an incredible elevation difference. And when there's an elevation difference, what do we know? That there's a temperature difference. And when those temperatures and uh, the, the cold in the air mix, it creates incredible wind. Now, if you've ever been in the mountains, especially up high, where there's these big elevation changes, and you've been caught in the storm, you know the fear that that storm can bring, and just how helpless you feel in the midst of that storm. Um, you know, I was thinking, thinking as I saw somebody yesterday post a picture, of the first person I've seen this year, I'm sure people have been doing it all year, they hike 14ers all year long, but in Colorado, as we hike 14ers, what is the most dangerous thing that happens? It's not falling off the cliff, 
It's the storm. It's lightning that can happen. And that's why we have to leave early in the morning and get off the, off the peak by noon on many of them. Not that I would know. There's, I don't. Anyway, there's no elk up there. Uh, maybe one day I'll climb longs just for kicks and giggles. Um, but that's what you have to do. You've got to get off the mountain. I have been caught in the mountains. I've been caught in the storm. The storm is scary, right? This lake, um, this lake, this lake a, ton of, a ton of Jesus' ministry would happen on this lake. Jesus would walk on the water. Um, then the disciples have their miraculous fish, fish catches. They would be in this lake, the feeding of the 5,000 people. Um, Right here on this lake, when Jesus appears after the resurrection, one of the, one of the appearances right here on this lake. And so this is an, an important lake to those disciples, to Jesus' ministry. He did so much there. His disciples would have known it well. They, they, these, his disciples, I mean, you got to remember, some of them, they fished. They knew how to fish. They, they knew the water. They knew how to command the boat. They knew how to captain the boat. And yet... In their skill set and in what they, were, they knew how to do, they found themselves in a place where they were out of control. And it happened fast. And when it happened, what did they do? But they went to Jesus. As we look and we see the story and we see that, that Jesus has authority over the physical realm, and we can't just see it here, we see it all over that when Jesus moves and works, that he moved and worked in such a way that he could defy what we would know could happen in the physical. He, he, could, he could do things in the supernatural that, that we would say cannot be done in the physical. And so they ran to him. They knew that they, they, they cried out. And of course, there's a rebuke there because he's like, didn't you know I'd take care of this? We're not going to perish. You can trust me. Here's what I think we must know. Is that in our lives... The storms will come fast. And often we won't see them coming. And they will be upon us. And before we know it, the waves will be crashing in. It will feel as if we are taking on water. And it will feel as if we are about to perish. You're going to feel helpless. The situation, just like being caught in a storm, it's going to feel so much bigger than you. And you're going you're gonna to feel in this place that you have no control. And let me tell you, friends, that is the best place that you can be. It is in the storm that we run to Jesus. It is in the storm that we have faith and we trust in Jesus. That we ought to be in that place when we know the storm is coming. That we can go, okay, it's going to be okay. Jesus has got this. God has got this. God is going to take care of this. I think the rebuke for the disciples comes from this. It's that they have seen at this point God work over and over and over and over. If you just go back, just take your Bible and start flipping back through the book of Luke, you're going to see all the times that he has done these miraculous things, that he's caused the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's healed the, the leper. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle. And I think there's something for us to learn there. Yeah, absolutely, in the storm, we should run to Jesus. 
But as we mature in our faith, we should get to the place of knowing when the storm comes that Jesus has authority over whatever the storm is. And that, that God is able to move and work in our circumstance no matter what it is. And so for the disciples, you would expect that faith would multiply faith. That when you believe God and you see him do something, the next time the situation comes, you ought to be able to, with greater faith, anticipate what it is that God's going to do. We see in Scripture that really faith should multiply faith. Trust in Christ should multiply trust in Christ. But friends, isn't, is that how our hearts always work? By no means. We have a short memory. And often we'll see God do a miraculous thing. And when the next circumstance comes, we will forget. And so we must remember that storms in life are going to come, but God has authority over the storms. We can trust God's sovereign uh, hand and his sovereign plan when the physical storms come in our lives. We should recall to mem- remember verses like Romans 8.28. That we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to his purposes. We, we should remember even what we, what we talked about last week. James chapter 1. What James, what James was saying I, I believe from from the parable of the sower, that we can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so here, my encouragement would you, would you to be is to see God's authority over the earth and trust God. Continue in verse 26. And so, then they sail to the country. So, they calms the storms. They sail to the country of the Gerasenes. This is the opposite the sea, other side of Galilee, where they just was. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he'd not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Those tombs would have been like cliffs, crevices, caves. Uh, uh, along the side was where where the sea met Jerusalem was massive hillside, massive cliff, and so he had lived among those. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, "What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?" He he knew the demons knew the authority of who he had, who he was. What do you have to do, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so this man was tormented. He lived a tormented life. He had a a supernatural strength. Uh, The people in the town would bond him. They would lock him in these caves. They would shackle him. And he would break them and he would come back out. He was a terror to the town. Uh, he, he, was, he was put away. He was locked away. That was, that was the point. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Um, legion was a, a military term, a Roman military term. Uh, a legion of soldiers 
had like 6,000 soldiers, 100 and something chariots. I mean, it was a big group of people. So when he says legions, it's thought that there were, there's just multiple, there's many thousands of demons possibly in this man. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And so scholars have a a lot of different takes on what does that mean? What is the abyss? Would that just meant they were... uh, they were just done with and gone, or they have to, to, to wait on something or the turn of Christ. Uh, scholars kind of debate that. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And so here's my next big idea, is that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. Now, I want, I want to bring something back to memory as we talk about this. In Luke chapter 4, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see the temptation of Jesus in the desert with Satan. And one of the main points that we drew away from that was that Jesus just di- didn't come to primarily fight a physical battle, but a spiritual one. What Jesus came to do wasn't primarily physical, it was primarily spiritual. Though he did physical things, right? He, he healed the lame, he calls the blind to see, we see him do physical things. He didn't overthrow the Roman government in a physical way like many hoped he would. And so what we see that it's primarily he came to fight a spiritual battle. In the book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this, he says... There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. You know... um, I told Jennifer this yesterday. I said, I I often feel really funny in our culture preaching about, talking about Satan or demons because it feels like I have to try to convince the people that I'm preaching to. I'm like an apologist for Satan. It's like I have to convince you that Satan is real. And that feels weird. You know, it's like I don't really care to do that. But but I think it's it's a must. I think uh, that, that in our culture, we're so materialistic. We're so in the physical that we as a whole push the spiritual aside. We, we push the spiritual aside, but that's not everybody. I, th- I think it's a large percentage. Now, there are people who, who really enjoy uh, spirituality, and particularly there are some who, who, who think about Satan and, and devils, and, and they focus on him, and they worship him. And so, man, all the Gen Xers in the room... Uh, you're looking at me, and you're thinking one thing. You're thinking like Dungeons and Dragons and Ouija boards. That's what you're thinking about, because that was a big deal back in the day. And I remember, I remember growing up, um, so, some of my friends' brothers like getting hung up on that stuff, and they were really like going down the dark path. And so, for those of you sinners who likes that show Stranger Things, you know, and you like look at all that stuff and. Y'all see that, and you're like, you kind of, you kind of, ah, yeah, it reminds me, that's why. Like, you're looking back on the 80s when you're thinking that stuff was cool. But listen, now, uh, man, now our local middle schools have Dungeons and Dragons clubs, and nothing is thought of it. But man, there's plenty of dark spirituality going on around us. 
You can go in a lot of gas stations. You can go in stores, and you can, right here, within a mile of us, you can go, I know of three different stores that you can go and buy crystals. And those crystals are said to have powers, spiritual powers, and they, they, they look at those different, those, those different powers. And I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It is like rocks to me. Um, but those crystals, there's people who get on that, and it's, you know, whatever you call it, good vibes, bad vibes, good juju, bad juju, whatever, however you like want to define that thing, there's a, there's a reality that there's people around us who focus on that thing. There's another uh, group of people that, that live right here around us that this is very true of people in Fort Collins. There's a lot of people who will burn sage. It's a Native American um, or indigenous people practice called smudging. And when, when uh, people do it now, it's cultural appropriation, and you shouldn't do it. Um, that's what they say. But what are they doing when they're burning the sage? Uh, that Native American practice was to get out the evil spirits. It, w- it was to cast the evil spirits out. That's why they did it. And so um, there's people who, just around us, they use sage in a ritualistic way. And so they believe uh, back in February, Jennifer and I went to San Diego for a, a church planner retreat, the Sin Network gathering, and uh, we had planned, we, we flew there on um, Monday and didn't start till the evening, and we had planned to have some time, and this was just going to be Jennifer and I time. It was kind of like a day off, you know, it was a Monday, and so we go to this, this beach there on, uh, I think it's Coronado Island, and we go land at this spot that's got tacos, and we're sitting there eating tacos on the beach, and we hold hands, and we walk down the beach. We're just enjoying it, man. We're like, this is it. We've got three hours to ourselves, man. This is it. And we sit down on a bench, and there's these two guys working at a resort that are setting up this uh, event thing, and they come over, and they start talking about Satan and demons and the church of the devil and Satanist stuff. And I'm like, really, God, on my day off? <laughs> on my, I got three hours with my wife, and I'm going to have to engage this guy and evangelize him over, these, the, over Satan worship. Come on. And uh, y'all don't judge me. But I just held her hand and looked at her. <laughs> and I just, we just talked. I, did, I didn't engage them. Uh, there are people who, and that was the right thing to do. That was the right thing to do. There, was, uh, there are people who engage that stuff. And so I feel weird, like, uh, like sitting here going, all right, guys, you really need to believe in Satan and his demons. But the reality is, it's true. The Word says it's true. The Word says that there is Satan, and he is a fallen angel, and he has demons, and there is a, in the spiritual realm, these fallen beings, and the Bible defines them and says that Satan's goal is to kill, to steal, and destroy. And here's the truth. His main goal and how he kills and steals destroys is that he sows unbelief. Satan's goal is to get you to not believe in Jesus. Period. That's his goal. Satan doesn't care if you believe in him. Matter of fact, it's a win if you don't believe in him. 
His goal is to get you to not believe in Jesus. So this is what I want to tell you today, and this is what I think that we're really flirting with in America. If you believe in Jesus, but you reject the notion of Satan and his demons, or you ignore the the notion of Satan and his demons, you really don't believe in Christianity. What you believe in is moral therapeutic deism. And let me me explain that to you. Moral therapeutic deism basically says... There's a, a God who exists, and he had some hand in the created uh, world. I mean, it could have happened through theistic, theistic evolution. It could have been something like that. But there's a God who exists. He has a hand in the created world, and he watches over the world. And so we feel good about it because there's somebody who's in control. Um, God, for, for his people, he wants them to be good, nice, fair to each other, um, as taught in the Bible in many other religions. And as long as you've got these good morals um, and that you believe in this good God, you're, you're okay. Uh, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And so as long as you can be happy and you can feel good, you're in a good spot. Um, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in our lives. He's made us capable. We can, can handle it. But it is good to have God when things get particularly rough and the storms come and we can take that genie in the bottle out and you know, get him to do what we need him to do. And if you're good, you'll go to heaven when you'll die. That's what moral, moralistic therapeutic deism is. And so uh, it says, hey, we should have good morals. There's a right and there's a wrong. There's a good and there's a bad, and, and uh, we, we're, we, we want people to be good. Now, how we define those, it's up in the air. Um, it's therapeutic, meaning our faith brings kind of peace to us, right? Because we have this faith, it, it gives this peace to us, and, and we do believe there's a God. I mean, that's just, that's just simple as it is. Christianity is not moral therapeutic deism. Christianity is saying there is a God. He is all-powerful. He is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life. And that he is intricately involved in our lives. He moves and he works in us. There is a spiritual realm. There is... There is uh, Good and evil. And he is the good and Satan is the evil. And that Satan was then on the cross defeated. And so we live in this already not yet. We live in a place of victory where Satan has been defeated. But we, we live in the consummation of the kingdom. As God is going to bring uh, the kingdom in his return. Where he will ultimately reign forever. And so we should look at this passage and we could see Legion and and the command that he has that those demons had to ask for permission. And we should realize God's authority over the spiritual and be glad. Christian, here's what I want you to know. Satan cannot hurt you. Satan cannot possess you. God will not allow him to. When you run to Christ, when you have come to Christ, you do not have to fear Satan. You don't. Who does the Bible tell you to fear? Is once in Scripture does the Bible ever say, fear Satan? It doesn't. It says what? Fear God. That's who it says. It's a holy, reverent, in the way that my boys ought to fear me, knowing that I love them, 
But they ought to fear my authority, knowing that I'm the one who have authority over them, is who we ought to fear. So we should look to God, know that He has authority over the spiritual realm, and submit ourselves to it. Not to be on the two opposite er errors. Not that we uh, just don't believe in the Satan at all, or that we don't get so caught up in it that we see Satan in everything. But rather, we trust God with the spiritual realm, and we surrender our lives to Jesus. Yet I see another realm. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's in 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 incredible. This man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, so he got into the boat and returned. Here's the next big idea, and it is that Jesus has authority over the social realm. Jesus has authority over society. Jesus has authority over culture. And if it's happening in society or happening in our culture, it is happening because Jesus has allowed it to. He, he leaves Galilee, a very Jewish city, and he crosses the lake and he goes into a city that's very blended. It is very much Gentile and um, how do I say this in, in, in our terms? Um, hardened Jewish followers. Uh, backslidden Jewish people. That, that would be a good way to, to say it in kind of old country terms. Uh, backslidden. They, they, they weren't living out their faith. It, matter of fact, it would be hard to be a Jew there and live out, out your faith. One, because you're in a Gentile culture. Um, two, you see what is one of the main things in agriculture there pigs and a lot of them and so for a Jewish person to do that is to know that's unclean we can't we can't do that so this wasn't this was this was a gentile pagan culture and he goes there and why does he go there we got to think it's it's with the intention like that we looked at last week that he's going to sow seeds that he's going to spread the gospel that he's going to go and preach as he does everywhere else and when he does this one act and, he, and, and the first person that he approaches, he heals the man. He casts the demons out of the man. Everybody else didn't have compassion on him. They had him aside. They didn't really care about this man. They cared more about those pigs than they did the man. Jesus has compassion on him. He heals him. And so then what is their response? We don't want you here. Leave. Now, what does he turn around and do? Depart from them. Because this fear with great fear, what does he do? He turns around and leaves. Now, you might say, well, who had authority? The people there? Or Jesus? And I'm going to tell you that Jesus had the authority. He could have done whatever he wanted. He had the authority over them. He could have, he could have caused them to be saved. Just if, if you go back to Jonah and you think of Jonah. And, and the well, and you see how he sent Jonah to the Ninevites, these Gentile people, and he saved them. 
There was a great revival. He could have done the same thing in that society, in that culture, in the Gerasenes at that time. But with the rejection of him, he turns around and he leaves. But he doesn't leave them without hope, does he? He doesn't just, he just doesn't leave. What does he, in fact, do? Listen. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so here's my next big idea is that Jesus has authority over you. He has authority over the personal realm. So yes, the physical realm, the spiritual realm, the societal realm, but he, your realm, your dominion, where you are, the three foot around you, he has authority. And this is what he did as he healed that man. As that man came to faith in Christ, the man wanted to go be with Jesus. The man wanted to continue to sit at Jesus' feet. But the society that just rejected him, he said, no, you're going to go be a missionary to them. That's what you're going to do. Because he has authority. I'm sending you to be the missionary to them. And this is what we know. So we know from the book of Acts. That some of these people later on would have come to faith. There, there would be people in this region that, that Christianity, when it swept through there, they believed the gospel and were saved. And so we should look today and look at our culture. Our culture that very much rejects Jesus. Very much just tells you, hey, just leave. Go do that over there. Go be elsewhere. There's a rejection of Jesus that we have to go, you know what? All we can be is faithful and sow seeds. We can't cause the harvest. We can't cause the seed to grow. We don't get to determine what seed lands on the, the good path, the, the, the rocky path, the soil, the thorns, the, the good fertile soil. We don't get to, to do that. We just sow the seed and we see who, where God moves and works, where he, has a th- where he saves. And so we look at our society around us. We engage it. We're the missionary. We're the one that says, go home and tell them what to do. And so, church, this is, this is we look at the society around us. We have to know that God is moving and working. We can look around us. We can see the darkness of it, the depravity of it. If you just watch the news, if you just walk into Target, or you, you whatever it is that you do in our culture, I, I mean, you see the darkness everywhere. But we got to know that God is moving and working. That God still is seeking and saving the lost. And, and man, it may be years down the road. I saw somebody say that in the Old Testament, there's over 4,000 years accounted for in the Old Testament. And only 130 years in which God did a miracle. Isn't that incredible? We look at the Old Testament, we think it's full of miracles. It is, but not in comparison to the number of years that it was there. And we live this life in our culture where sometimes it feels like Sodom and Gomorrah. We feel like we're living in, in a time where the people are so far from God, but yet we must know that God is moving and working. That, 
that even when it feels like he's not, that he is. And then we must acknowledge that Jesus has authority over each of us, over everybody. His authority will be in the end. And just like he treated the people. So we, we see people who hear the gospel and they say, get away from me, Jesus. And that's the wrong response. The right response is one of, of, of faith. It's the one of turning to Jesus and surrendering your life to his authority. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the name that is above every name. And it is at his name that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, is do you do it now and live for him now? Or do you confess he is Lord when you meet him and you've been rejected by him. When his, his rightful and just wrath is now being dispensed on you. When do you do it? Now or do you do it later? And friends, I'm going to tell you to do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Take your faith and place it in the Lord Jesus today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Christian in the room, know that you can trust God. You can trust him in the storm. You can trust him in every realm. And you can trust him to obey him, to follow him. The one who truly, that the seed is planted and they truly grow up. There, remember we said this last week, there is root, shoot, and fruit. It is the one who trusts and obeys. So Father, we come to you today thanking you for your word. Lord, as, as this is somewhat of a hard passage for us to deal with because we don't like to think about the other side of the spiritual realm. Lord, may we see it, may we acknowledge it, and may we run to you. May our faith be in you. May we declare that you are good, that you are God, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. May we trust in your authority today. May we surrender to your authority today. Let us submit to you. And that means that, that we're not living for ourselves. And we're not trying to live our own lives, but we're living surrendered to you. We're acknowledging that your ways are higher than our ways and that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that you can do in our lives and in our hearts far more than we could ever ask, imagine, or think. God, we are, we are saying today that you are great and you are good and that you are king. And so we love you, Lord. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing this song of response.